1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you struggle to find the time and energy to consistently eat healthy? You're not alone. And there is a solution introducing Factor, the all-in-one meal delivery service that preps, cooks, and delivers fresh, never frozen, fully prepared meals directly to your door weekly. With Factor, every meal is designed by dietitians and handcrafted by world-class chefs, keeping your taste buds happy and your waistline trim. What's more, the menu changes every week, so you never lose interest in eating healthy. Right now, Factor is offering listeners of the Can We Please Talk podcast $50 off over their first two weeks. Just go to factor75.com, pick your meals, and use code PODCAST50 at checkout to claim this limited time offer. That's factor75.com, code PODCAST50.
0: everybody, welcome back to another installment of the Kennedy Police Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. We've got a very special episode again tonight. Uh, Nick alluded to it a while ago. A lot of guests uh, continue to appear on this show. And tonight, uh, we're very blessed to have Professor Michael Eric Dyson with us to discuss his new book, Long Time Coming, uh, a reckoning with race in America. Uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author. He's also a professor of African American studies at Vanderbilt University, formerly sociology professor at Georgetown University. Um, Nick, uh, you know, I've seen Professor Dyson doing his his book tour now, and I know he's. I've uh, been running around uh, doing so many different interviews, and, and a lot of his books are on that New York Times bestselling list, so we're so blessed to have him uh, with us tonight.
1: Yeah, Dr. Dyson brings just a ton to uh, to our show, and just to any conversation he steps into. Um, he's just really one of the preem- preeminent speakers in matters of, of race in America, so it's mind-boggling that we get a chance to get some time with him today. Um uh, Dr. Dyson's first work that I read was back in 2006, uh, which was a discussion about uh, some comments at the time that Bill Cosby had made in reference to black parents. Um, and Dr. Dyson really effectively took apart his argument uh, and also spoke about the black middle class's response to um, Bill Cosby's comments at the time. Uh, and you know, now, shifting gears, long time coming, different style of writing you know, we get to learn today, uh, hopefully get the time, get a chance to talk a little bit about even the the format in this text, which is actually in the form of letters uh, to to members of the Black community who have died uh, at the hands of the police department. And, you know, having him speak to getting into that new voice as a writer, I think it's going to be amazing. But also, as a professor, you know, from an education standpoint, what is he seeing showing up in his classrooms? This'll, again, we're gonna, we're lucky we have probably a limited time to talk to him but we're gonna make the most of it and get into a variety of different topics so i'm ready to start yeah this, this is incredible
0: i mean there's there's literally so much to talk to with him about because you know like you mentioned his his book long time coming uh, reckoning with race in america that's out now is really a bunch of letters a series of letters to elijah McClain, eric garner sandra bland uh brianna taylor you know all of these um deaths that have happened uh, at the hands of police in in the recent years, months. um, And everything's been exacerbated, you know, by the pandemic, everyone being at home now, um, everyone just kind of watching the news and seeing what's unfolded after George Floyd's death back in, uh, I believe it was May. Um, And so now everybody's heightened, right? And during that time, he's home writing this book, and it's got to be so difficult to write a book about such a deep topic and you're writing letters to people that are no longer here anymore, right? It's, it's directly and indirectly affecting members of his community. Um, so he, he's got such a depth of knowledge about that. And, and also, uh, like you said, the education side, you know, What does he think about our education system? You know, we did an episode about education and here's a guy, you know, at the height of his profession, you know, teaching at Vanderbilt, Georgetown. Um, What does he make of the education system overall in America? You know, there's so much to talk with him about. We're, We're really lucky to have him on the show tonight. All right. Joining us now, uh, he's a professor of African-American studies at Vanderbilt University, and he's a New York Times bestselling author. And he recently released a book, Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. And that is Professor Michael Eric Dyson. Dr. Dyson, I'm Mike Leon, Nick Severi. Thanks so much for jumping on with us.
2: Thanks for having me, my friends. Uh,
0: Dr. Dyson, you know, I, I've had a chance to read the book. Um, it's really powerful, e- even just from the first chapter in about Elijah McLean, um, I'm wondering, like, how, how difficult is it to write books on this subject matter, even your last book, The Tears We Cannot Stop, um, that directly and indirectly have affected you?
2: Yeah. No. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, the style and intelligence with which both of you uh, conduct yourselves and this tremendous uh, podcast. Look, it is extremely difficult. Uh, because it's not just an intellectual and abstract kind of thing. It's an existential and personal one. Mm -hmm. You know, Black people dying, people of color being victimized by white supremacy, by police brutality, constantly, repeatedly, uh, without, it appears, much relief. So uh, even though I felt compelled to communicate the horrors and traumas to which Black people and other people of color are subject, um, I wanted to to do so by writing letters to these, um, you know, martyrs as opposed to about them, because I didn't want to further objectify them, uh, cash in on their names for dollars. I wanted to really communicate uh, the sense of hurt and pain that uh, people of color endure uh, when recognizing that the state imprimatur of a badge and a gun, a taser and a baton in the service of the official rules and the official governance of the government uh, is used to undermine and hurt uh, people of color. In this case, specifically black people, but Latinx, indigenous, Arab people—you know—across the board. And so, I wanted to uh, to talk about that. And it is painful. You know, in my generation, we didn't have trigger warnings. You know, when I'm in class and young people go, oh, "Doc, you know, should we, should we give a warning?" And I'm not even thinking like, "Huh, we're gonna watch the video, bro." That's what happened. Uh, <laughs> that's what old people do. What I do. So <laughs> the thing is, is that you know, I realize that those trigger warnings are important. Safe spaces are important. Trying to figure out how to hold on to your uh, integrity and your spiritual. Uh, flourishing is extremely important, but also important is to confront trauma and the truth of our tragedy and suffering that we endure and to communicate that. And I felt it was necessary to uh, to write in the fashion that I did.
1: Dr. Dyson, the first work of yours I read was back in around 2006. You had written a, a fantastic book that just took apart uh, Bill Cosby's argument or the recent statements he had made at that time. Um, so when I think about the piece you just wrote, you just had written now, um, and just the different voice you brought to it in the form of writing letters. What was that experience like? Shifting into that um, that style of writing, uh, just as a progression and shift from from your previous pieces.
2: Yeah, um, you know, obviously with Bill Cosby, I wanted to tackle a subject with as much scholarship, insight, empirical evidence, proof, uh, and logical articulation because he was making an extremely, to me, destructive argument, an emotionally driven one as well. And I wanted to calmly dismantle uh, what he was doing. I took a lot of heat for it. You know, people came at me, death threats. I was like, over Jello o pudding pop? That's, that's what you want to come at me over? Like for real? That's, that's what it is? Uh, not that I take any, and it's not Schadenfreude. It, you know, I don't take any delight. In the downfall of anybody, Bill Cosby was a is a comedic genius, and he had a tremendous impact on my life. You know, as I was growing up, uh, there's no doubt about that. But at the same time, you know, I wanted to confront what I thought was misinformation and disinformation. So that was a rigorous scholarly look at arguments he was making to try to dismantle them. This book, I have scholarship in there. You know, stuff about slavery, stuff about Jim Crow, stuff about, you know, black people being stolen from Africa and brought here, stuff about law, stuff about culture and sociology and the rules and practices of enslavement. All that stuff is in there, but it's described in a different way. It's communicated in more eloquent, hopefully, uh, articulate language that people can resonate with, more poetic, more passionate. Uh, it has the resonance of, personal investment, as well as scholarly reflection and intellectual engagement. So hence the shift into an epistolary form uh, versus with Bill Cosby, you know, writing of a unitary book that was held together by my arguments uh, about his particular statements that were insulting, demeaning, and not true about mostly poor Black people. Today's episode
0: of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is the plant based subscription meal kit that makes it easy to cook irresistible meals to fuel your body. Each week, choose from an expansive and delicious menu of dinners, lunches, breakfasts, and snacks. Every box is an opportunity to learn and experience something new with easy recipes and fresh, pre portioned ingredients. No shopping, no food waste. Just globally inspired, restaurant quality, plant-based meals. Get $30 off your first box by going to purplecarrot.com and entering the promo code PODGO30 at checkout today. That's PODGO30 for $30 off your first Purple Carrot box. Purple Carrot, the easiest way to eat more plants. Dr. Dyson, we recently did an episode on policing in America, and we had an African-American police officer from the Maryland, D.C. area. Mm -hmm. He has zero use of forces in seven years. And he told us that his white counterparts that they recruit from suburban areas, they have very limited interaction with black people, and they confuse agitation and frustration. And when the Freddie Gray situation happened, he was coming out of the academy, he struggled to want to be a police officer. And he felt being a police officer will better serve his community. But I asked the question in this context, what does police reform look like to you? Because you mentioned in the book about the Clinton policy of men, but don't end. But what is actual police reform at the local state level look like to Dr. Dyson?
2: Yeah, stop killing people. Stop killing black people unnecessarily, unduly, unjustly without warrant, um, don't escalate immediately uh, a situation. And so many of these cops, these white cops, hate Black people. Well, 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 you know, They just don't like us. They don't dig us. They don't feel us. They don't feel people of color. You know, It's a macho, y macho, it's a mano, y mano kind of thing. So they roll up on people, and women too, and deploying their guns, their badges, their tasers, and their arrogance, and their fragile egos and their ability to lord it over people. I hate to be that reductive about it, but how else can we explain it? I'd rather say that than you have an innate intolerance for Blackness. It is an inherited anti-Blackness, anti-Brownness, anti-Indigenous belief. Um, All that stuff is deeply rooted in the culture and deeply rooted in the practices and behaviors of many of these cops. They ain't on Mars. So if if the larger society is imbibing and internalizing these beliefs about black people, they're going to catch them too. It's not like they're exempt. Oh, we're cops. You know, that's this notion of blue lives versus black lives. You're not born blue. And if you are go back to the emergency ward, because you are not getting enough oxygen. Okay. <laughs> so you ain't born blue homie. And uh, the reality is, is that reform looks like stop shooting us. Beyoncé was right, holding up the sign in the video, stop, arrête, maintenant, please. And whatever that takes, if you look at a number of black and brown cops, they ain't killing nobody. And then you talk about agitation and frustration, they know like, dude, I'm pissed, man, my girl won't give me none, I'm over here, damn, and I just bought her a TV, man, 50 inch, bruh, what, what? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you need to probably go like damn, I hear you, bro. I ain't going to shoot and, you. And, but it's true and that's
0: what he that, that's what he talks about. He knows if he pulls someone over right? And it amounts to a small offense. He knows you're going to be in the system. I'm not going to ruin your life for a small mistake. Right. But does it take more police officers like that to actually reform the system? What, what does it actually take to uproot the entire system? We saw Minneapolis try, right? Right. So what, what does it actually take well, to reform some of this?
2: No, no, that's true. You know, look, so you got to distribute, you got to decentralize the authority of the cops, because they are out of order. And the police unions are mad power hungry. And a lot of them are racist. You look at the guy who's running the one in New York, I don't know, his, You know, I'm sorry, dude. You're racially charged, you're racially biased, you're racially insensitive. You make horrible statements, you are agitating. You are not a public servant of calm and grace and that poise. You are trying to hype up the agitation and escalate it to a degree that is intolerable. I mean, if this guy is doing this when he's just making statements in behalf of his union, what's he doing on the streets? What kind of cop was he? You know? And so um, we don't get the benefit of the doubt. So we got to redistribute the power. We got to, when they say defund the police, all they're saying is take some of that dough and give it to people who could use it, who could address mental health issues. Why are we calling the cops on somebody who's having a psychotic breakdown? Can we call somebody with some therapeutic intervention who knows Freud and Young, and if they ain't Young, at least know Freud? Okay, sorry. So the <laughs> point is, <laughs> you know, to hmm. to engage in a way and in a fashion that permits that particular intervention not to escalate to the point of fatality. So it's both the outlook, the viewpoint, the behavior, the worldview. Um, and it's about taking away resources. Police don't need all that, but they're de- they don't mind defunding schools. They don't mind defunding social programs for the poor. Why are you mad at defunding the police? So we got to figure out ways, and all that means is removing resources in one arena, putting them in another. The we ain't saying we don't want no public safety, right? Black people call the police more than anybody, so we call the cops' dog. So we ain't we ain't hating on the cops. But when you show up, can you make a distinction between us and the people who are doing real criminal activity out here, and between us as citizens who pay your salary, and you coming in, uh, you know, gangbusters trying to hurt us and kill us? So yeah, you know, if policing to me reform and defunding and reorganizing looks like shifting monies to different departments, decentralizing the authority of police, uh, making sure that. Uh, public safety is not simply or exclusively in the hands of the cops, and refiguring and reimagining what it looks like when we deliver services to people we protect and serve. And that would be hugely different. But another way we reform it and change it is to make cops stop hating black people, not uh, being prejudiced toward black people uh, or brown people. Um, uh, toward minority, toward indigenous people. In other words, we'd have to go back and rejigger the whole algorithm of their intelligence and their training and their consciousness in a society and their social conscience. And, and and we can't do all that. So in the meantime, if we can't go back to the beginning of your childhood and then figure out how to change your perspectives and the accumulated grievances of your whiteness or your Americanness and how that gets redirected toward, you know, people of color. And when you stop in that interaction, you're nervous. I mean, how are you gonna be a damn cop and you so scared? What are you doing? Like, you ain't shooting white people that same way. I'm sure y'all saw the cops stop the white boy the other day. And this dude has got a gun in his seat and he threatens them twice, I'm gonna shoot you. And they ain't shot him. Dude, if that was a Puerto Rican, if that was a black man, If that was an Arab brother, come on. If that was a Middle Easterner, if that was somebody, you know, who wasn't a white person, do you think they'd be alive right now? You know? uh, And then he drove off all on tape. Can we get that? Whatever leads you to treat that dude that way, that's what we need. And so yes, we got to, you can, now I know Mayor Ros Baraka says that's some bourgeois black stuff. We need cops up in here, you know, people who living in the hood and in urban culture need it. We just need correct policing. Look, I ain't against I'm, I'm with whoever can do the best job with the resources they possess in order to bring comity and balance to our communities. Now, I ain't going to try to pretend that, you know, if you're living in a rough situation, you want the cops. You know, if you're living in a tough situation, despite all of the theoretical articulations of progressive engagement with abolition of police, they're like, look, bro, Whatever. I just need the cops to come over here and help me solve this issue because these people are wilding out. So uh, we have to balance a communal concern with uh, protection and safety with uh, public safety that is not escalated to the degree that it undercuts our ability to treat each other as human beings and especially for black and brown people and indigenous and other minoritized people to be treated with respect by law enforcement. When we think of George Floyd and his murder
1: this summer uh, and I go back to what I remember with Eric Garner uh, and just seeing that on, seeing the video on television, um, what made, what made Mr. Floyd's murder, what seems to be a watershed moment in the movement to have a social uprising nationally, globally, as we're seeing, what made this particular black man's death more of a galvanizing moment than what we have seen in the past?
2: Yeah, no. Um, I think, look, a lot of people were at home. you had the crib. Mm-hmm. You're, you're in COVID. If you can afford to, if you're not one of these people of color or other poor Americans or working class Americans on the front line delivering food, uh, handling health care uh, in old people's homes, I know that's not the politically correct way of saying it, you know, elder care and uh, nursing homes and the like. And you could afford to stay at home. You're watching your screens. You know, you are looking at PlayStation. I don't know. You know, looking at two NFL, NBA, two K, whatever, playing games or just looking at the news, uh, watching uh, Leon and Zavara. You know, Nick and Mike. You know, checking them out, and then you see you see this flash across your screen. So you're already you're already there. Many more eyeballs to them together collectively are looking at their screens in ways they're not usually doing. They might do it episodically during any given day, but with the masses of Americans home because of COVID, a lot more eyeballs were trained on those screens. And that's number one. Number two, I think a lot of white people said, we're out of excuses, bro. <laughs> like, we can't say he was running because he's like laying on the ground. We can't say he was acting a fool, as my daddy said, cutting a fool. He's going, officer, sir, please. While he's being killed. Uh, we can't say he had a gun. You got your knee in his neck. So all the usual excuses were removed and white folk were like, well, damn. Black folk have been telling us, people of color have been telling us this and how we really see it. And then the dude's arm in his pocket please let me up. I can't breathe. Yeah, whatever. You're talking, bro. You can, you can breathe. The callous disregard, uh, the casual sadistic approach that allowed this cop to dig his knee into this man's neck with wanton disregard for his humanity. That just, you know, I think those things pop even white brothers and sisters off and said, look, we got to hit the street. This is crazy. And plus, the screens had always, already given us a kind of false intimacy with each other, right? We can't talk to each other in real time. So we, we're looking at screens and, and we're getting used to it. Oh, hey, I love you. Hey, how you feeling? Okay. Hey, Ma. Or going to your therapist or your doctor. So now screens are mediating ironically and paradoxically distant intimacy. We're, we are mediating them. We're, we're, we're creating the illusion of a kind of intimacy and kinship and so when they look at those screens, they have a, a built-in kind of empathy, if you will, for this man. And when you put all that together, uh, white folk were like, enough is enough. Plus, with our bodies already being besieged, like, are you kidding, Jiminy Cricket? We, we're, in, we're in COVID. You're killing people in COVID? right? So all that together, I think, pushed America in a different way, made it a global phenomenon and people hit the street. The reason these were the biggest protest movements uh, against racial injustice in the history of this nation, white bodies swole the numbers. And not just swollen them in terms of attendance, when look at Jacob Blake, shot five, six, seven times, hit five times in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Black Lives Matter protests, the two men who died were white. So they're putting their lives on the line, not just our theoretical articulations of advocacy and allyship, they're taking bullets and dying. And, and, and across the country, people were being arrested and the like. Uh, but that notwithstanding, I think all that stuff got people involved, and yeah, so that was different. That is different. That is a different gesture. Now where six months later, people say, you know, we can't get it on the broadcast. Ain't nobody talking about systemic racism. Whereas right afterward, people were talking systemic, what, are, did they say systemic racism? There's like conservative people talk about systemic racism. We've been, you know, they are apologizing to Colin Kaepernick, what, I mean, damn, what? Now, it dies out now, but that's, you know, when you fall in love with somebody, you know, white people fell in love with black people again. They're like, oh, we <laughs> love you, you're, mm-hmm. you're black people. And then, you know, when you fall in love for the first time, I'm sure you all know, given your partners, you know, you got roses and you got rosé and you got Rick Ross. Okay. I just had to go with three arc. You know, I got Rick Ross. I'm in my, (laughs) 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 or at least some Drake or something. And then, you know, you, Oh baby, I love you. What's up. And then six months later, can you leave the toilet stool down and the toothpaste wearing that toilet stool? toilet seat toothpaste moment, where it's the unsexy ordinary that has to accommodate our impulse towards social change. What are the practical things we can do to show that we are committed to this in the long term? So yeah, it's faded, but nothing can stay hot forever. Nothing can stay at the top, at the zenith, at the apex of its expression forever. But we got to remind each other, we have to be intentional about social change. So I think that, yeah, it's different and it has the potential to really be different permanently, but we have to make it so it can't just be so on its own. The social stance, because you talked about the Jacob Blake situation, right? And then we
0: saw the social stand that a lot of athletes took in the mm-hmm. summer. Right. But it's athletes taking stands in empty arenas, right? It's not really affecting the television dollars. It's not really affecting where the money's changing hands, right, which is the billionaire owners. Right. So I'm just curious, it, did, did you think of those stands by the athletes? Uh, what do you make of them? Did they impact anything? And then also, on the flip side of that, right? Why are athletes so scrutinized and criticized for speaking out when they are tax-paying citizens of the United States?
2: Right. Uh, yeah, I do think it made a di- it made a difference. Your point is well taken. That if there were you know fans in the arenas, and then they would be pissed hey, I can't believe LeBron and Kyrie Irving or the WNBA is doing it, so they take a hike, so we can't test it like they tried to do with football. All oh, the reason the numbers are down is because Colin Kaepernick was doing this and they're against protests. Well, it could be that your product ain't as good as it used to be, and, you know, your rules are jacking the game up, the flow. So, you know, Occam's Razor says, let's go for the simplest explanation, Brad. I'm be trying to be all deep about it. Uh, unnecessarily and avoiding the issue. So I think that, yeah, that's true. But I think they made a hell of an impact. I think, you know, when they did a work stoppage, that was big. And not showing up and we ain't going to do these games because people are still watching on TV. And the money is TV. A little little arena that has 19,000 people ain't affecting much. The money ain't going from there. I mean, it, you know, far be it for me to say I don't own an arena and a team with 19,000 people coming 80 or 40 times a year. So let me not dismiss that. That's doubt. That's real money. Right, right. But having said that, as James Brown would say, house and ever, uh, the real though is when you got these TV rights and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars and if they can beam them out. That's why they had to come back now for 72 games. It's, it's about the money, honey. And it's big money involved. And the fact that they got these owners, they stopped work and said, y'all going to do more than show up and be like nice white guys or not the NFL owner. you getting credit for just not being Jerry Jones. You ain't got to do nothing. Just not be him. And so they definitely uh, made a difference. And I think, um, you know, not being there uh, that day, day. Uh, those days that they didn't show up made a huge difference. They spoke up. I'm glad they had the games in the bubble because every day, Breonna Taylor, every day, you know, this would be a good day to arrest the killers of Breonna Taylor. That was extraordinary, right? If they had been playing during regular times without COVID, I'm not so sure that would have happened like that. But it did because of the bubble, and that was extraordinary. Why are they scrutinized? Because they're rich black people, man, for the most part, you know. A few Puerto Rican cats up in there. Few Eastern European dudes, although they're getting rid of JJ Beret. What's up with that man? You got to give Puerto a- uh, Rican. I mean, a- he's like I-
0: he's bordering forty. You know, we got to give you, know,
2: you got to give some Puerto Rican exceptions up in here. Right. Like you got to give a you got to give a darn white boy, white American male exception. Like where's the Larry Bird exception? Like where are the white men? I mean, good God, we got to h- stick up for them. Right. So, so the thing is, is that you know when you look at why they this man, they they don't want the you know you're rich. Why are you speaking? You're rich. You got a president who's a billionaire who you say speaks for you, the regular white man. Miss me with that. Miss me with all of that yammer about, oh, they're rich. Now they're probably richer in reality than Donald Trump because he ain't got no dough. But he acted like, as my daddy said, make like he had a billion dollars. So you, you can hire him to be your president, to speak for all of America, but rich black people can't say, The horror and tragedy of this situation or rich Eastern European cats or Latinx cats can't say, look, this is wrong. Or the women who are way ahead of the men, as great as the men are. And my book is dedicated to LeBron, so, you know, I got mad love for them. But uh, they are taking a hit because there's resentment already at their achievement. There's resentment at the fact that they make so much money. And then on top of that, they have the nerve to identify with those who don't make money. You know, when people say, you're not uh, doing bad at all. Why are you worried? That's the. That's what's character. That's what's character characteristic of their integrity. They don't have to talk about it. They make in doubt. And they're concerned about the people who don't. But what they do know is that get caught on the wrong time at the wrong place in the wrong space, I don't care how much money they make and they can get treated the same way. So I think part of that cultural resentment uh, you know, shut up and dribble. I'm glad LeBron didn't shut up. I'm glad he kept on dribbling and I'm glad he kept on talking and making a difference. That's the route toward redemption in this culture.
0: Dr. Dyson, um, thank you so much for, for being with us tonight. Go get his book. You see it here on my bookshelf for those of you watching on YouTube. Long time coming, uh, Reckoning with Race in America. Uh, you can see him as he's doing this book tour uh, across America now. Thank you, Dr. Dyson for joining us tonight. We really
2: appreciate it. Thank y'all so very kindly, my man. I look forward to coming on again. All
0: right. That was Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. Uh, his book, Long Time Coming, A Reckoning with Race in America is out now, wherever you get your books. Um, just so much to talk with him about. We, we, we teased it at the top. Nick, I see you shaking your head for, for those of us watching on video. But, uh, it's, it's just, there's just so much to talk with him about, you know, bet- between not only his book and what it speaks about right i I mentioned it to him like it's so powerful the first chapter about elijah mcclain in that story is it's it's really disheartening right but then what does police reform look like like i've never heard him speak about the actual individual steps that could be taken and it's been tried before but that doesn't mean that you know we we a lot of people, I think, even in the police community, uh, community uh, as the officer who came on our program told us, you know, do believe in, in reallocating resources to do certain things, right? He, in his words, you can't have a roof Chris Stake at the Price, you know, and expect the same service. And Dr. Dyson conceded, you know, like, we do need police. So there's just so much to unpack with him. Uh, what do you think of the interview overall?
1: Yeah, I think he cements what the former President Obama had said the other day when talking about the, I mean, he was speaking to marketing, really. Like, how, what does that phrase mean? Defund the police, and and he didn't say it's a misnomer, but he was trying to bring up the point that it's ne- it might be producing a false narrative, uh, and I think that's what Dr. Dyson spoke to. Like, he's owning the fact that this is yes, there is a need for the presence of the police department. I mean, in the within the black community, it's not like in the, in those communities that people are saying we don't want any police presence. But what we are speaking to is the idea of police reform. And I think that's what Dr. Dyson put on the table. Uh, overall, I, everything's advertised. Like, yeah, anyone that's watching this on video, like, I'm shaking my head because it's like what Dr. Dyson brings to this discussion is honestly what, like, fans of Jordan saw in the 90s. Like, this is a preeminent speaker of black thought in the United States of America on this show. And to hear him speak his piece, to talk about his progression of his writing, and I mentioned you know a book that I'd read of his back in two thousand six. You know, fast forward fourteen years later, and taking now the voice of one who writes letters to he, as he put it, martyrs, and just seeing the progression of his writing, but just him as a thinker, um, and just just an openness to share really his experience, and really spoke to you know to Mike and I from a, from a place of this is where this is what's up.
0: Yeah, you know, it's hard to put into words. I recommend for a lot of people out there, you know, that may have judgments about Dr. Dyson one way or the other. um, I I would recommend this book long time coming, you know, reckoning with race in America, because I, I think this is probably and you asked him this question about the style of writing. This book is written differently than his than his other books, and this and this is a guy who's done books on Jay Z, on Tupac, um, so he's done biographies on people in the entertainment industry. Obviously, he mentioned his relationship with LeBron. Uh, we all know he's he was close with Kobe Bryant before his passing. So here's a guy like you mentioned, deep within black culture. But I would recommend a lot of people read this book because it's not kind of what you think when you think of Dr. Dyson, regardless of where you're on the political aisle, because it's really storytelling. And I learned a lot of facts within the book, right? And a lot of the stories of different um, instances of police brutality in the African-American community. I'm just delighted that, that he was able to shed some light on a lot of different things. You know, he's been doing the book tours now. So, you know, obviously he's answering a lot of these same questions, but I just felt like tonight you got more of his personality, his character. As always, you can check out our YouTube channel if you want to watch the video clips, um, get this podcast audio-wise, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to the show, tell your friends about us, uh, leave us a comment in the app stores or wherever the comment sections are. Uh, as always, I'm Mike Leon. On. I'm Nick Severi. Our last episode of the year before the holiday break, we're going to do a recap of 2020, um, just some of our best moments from the season and some of our guests. You know, we had Naveed Jamali on Reggie Love, Dr. Dyson, Jason Ayer, Sabrina Rodriguez, Aaron Mallon. Um, so we're going to do a recap for everybody of just some of Nick and I's favorite moments from the year. So thanks for listening. We'll catch everybody next time. See you all soon. Take care.